Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region. To China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty, it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from stately Goldhorn Manor in the Tony suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who、uh, was recently outed as a Jiang Zemin fetishist. In fact, I think a Jiang Toady, as they say, <laughs> Mr. Tiumi. Tiumi Senpai. Yeah, how's life post vaccination for you, man? Yeah, it's pretty good. I have to say, I, I didn't realize quite how much I miss talking to strangers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah he, Jeremy. If for those of you who don't know him, is notoriously misanthropic. He was a sociopath. He was the guy who we always say when I'd want to go get a beer after a taping of the show. Let's not go there. No one goes there. There's too many people. That's what. That's what <laughs> anyway, Jeremy,、um, th- this is kind of a tease, actually, because you're not actually going to be co-hosting today, but rather you're you're playing the role of guest because you've written a chapter and a very good one, I thought, for the book that we are discussing today.、Uh, this month marks the hundredth anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, and to mark the occasion, Cambridge University Press has published an excellent volume called "The Chinese Communist Party: A Century in Ten Lives."、Uh, it has outstanding. Contributions from some of the leading historians and scholars of politics working on China today, and from Jeremy.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the book was、uh, edited by Timothy Cheek, Klaus Mulhan, and Hans Vandeven, and I am delighted to be joined today by one of those editors who also contributed an essay. Timothy Cheek. Tim is a professor of history at the University of British Columbia and is the author of, among many publications, "The Intellectual in Modern Chinese History." Tim, welcome at long last to Seneca. Great to have you. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm a fan. Oh, fantastic! Well, I am too. I am also joined by Elizabeth Perry, who is easily one of the most highly regarded scholars working on Chinese history and politics. Liz is Henry Rosovsky, professor of government at Harvard University, and serves as director of the Harvard Yanjing Institute. She's an incredibly prolific writer who has published some two dozen books. More on a wide range of topics on modern Chinese history and politics in English and in Chinese, I should add.、Uh, Liz, welcome to Seneca, and great to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, fantastic.、Uh, I'm really glad we could all assemble. All of you are frequently asked to talk about、uh, the Chinese Communist Party to audiences that perhaps aren't as familiar、uh, with that institution as our listenership is. Actually, our listenership isn't even that well informed about the party. To judge by some of the questions I field、uh, from people, you know, who profess to be listeners but ask me some very strange questions.、Uh, so, if you had to liken the CCP to any other extant institution or you know historical institution that might be you know better known and better understood, what would you liken it to? I mean, or is it in its current incarnation simply sui generis? Well. Okay, if you were to ask me,、um, first of all, the answer I would give you would be one that、uh, my colleague, when I used to teach at the University of California at Berkeley, Ken Jowett, always gave.、Oh, um, Ken was a specialist on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and to him, the obvious analogy was the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, absolutely. Ken um, himself uh, had grown up uh, in the Catholic Church, and um, he felt that the combination of concern for ideology and concern for organization and control were remarkably similar. I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. I grew up in the Anglican Church, so a little more relaxed, a little less controlling. (laughs) And uh, probably the most controlling environment I've existed in is Harvard University, um, where everything actually is centrally (laughs) controlled, and there is a myth of faculty governance and um, uh, all sorts of institutions that in theory replicate the mass line, but the reality is all the decisions are (laughs) centrally um, determined. And actually, I've found existing within the Harvard bureaucracy to be remarkably helpful for understanding some of the operations of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. But I'm sure other analogies come to the minds of our co-authors here. Yeah, Tim, I mean, I I did half expect somebody to come up with the Catholic Church. I've I've used that one myself. Well, um, Tim, you know, but Harvard? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was a new one for me. Yeah, um, me too, me too. Uh, uh, I'm with I'm with Liz and with Ken the uh, at the Catholic Church, and I find it most useful for exactly the reasons that Liz gave. And it, but being a historian, I say I think more of the Catholic Church historically, uh, when it was uh, saving souls, burning sinners, and running armies. Ah, right, right, right. And uh, the you know when the, if you think of the. Uh, uh, early modern period, uh, and so the the party it is a bit like that. It's helpful to think about because uh, we easily get into sort of very dark terminology about uh, uh, about the Communist Party and totalitarianism, and uh, it's uh, with the Catholic Church we have deeply mixed feelings. It does some good things and it does some bad things. That's right. That's that's very well put. Jeremy, you want to weigh in here? I absolutely agree with the Catholic Church. I think that's the best way to describe the Communist Party to somebody who doesn't know anything about it. I think the mafia is also uh, another good way. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's a very secretive organization, very hierarchical. Uh, They do provide goods and services. You know, uh, mafia organizations often do necessary things for immigrants that uh, immigrant communities that the government isn't providing. As the Muslim Brotherhood does. And- mm. uh, they are organized. They have a, a code of absolute loyalty. If you cross them, you know, uh, there's a bullet with your name on it. So I, I, I think that, that, that that's pretty good. Um, I, you know, I know there's a side of you that would hate that analogy because uh, uh, the, the first thing that springs to mind is, you know, the worst aspects of the mafia. But the mafia, you know, uh, mafia organizations, uh, criminal organizations, triads, they exist for a reason. So a good mafia. Okay, let's get into the book. And, and I want to ask you guys how the volume came together. I mean, it made sense, of course, to want to do some sort of an anthology commemorating the party at its centennial. But how did you settle on this decade by decade approach and an approach that centered on individuals who sort of represented the zeitgeist of each of the decades? Well, it started a, a, a number of years ago, about three or four years ago. And Liz will remember that we invited you to Berlin, I think, in August of 2018. And you and Hans were about the only two who couldn't make it, but were interested. We, uh, Klaus and I were trying to pull together people interested in the Communist Party looking forward to the 100th anniversary and saying, well, Xi Jinping, if he's done nothing else, has reminded us that the party is not going anywhere. 
and uh, what are people writing about. So we brought people together from China. Uh, that, we had a couple of Chinese scholars from PRC at that time, which was great. Uh, in fact, one of our contributors, Xu Jilin, uh, and um, Ishikawa from Japan and others. Mm -hmm. And we were just simply overwhelmed because there's excellent new research being done in the last 20 years uh, by scholars inside China. And um, to do a comprehensive was beyond us. And so I didn't know what to do. And then Han said, why don't we do something like the BBC uh, History of the World in 100 Objects? Uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and my answer was, we all would like to write a book like Timothy Brook, we, but we know we can't, but we could write a chapter. Right, right, right. We decided one person, one decade, to try to show the change over time. My big shtick is contingency and that uh, each ideological moment or each decade can be quite different. Indeed. Quite different, but then there still somehow are themes that, that emerge when you look at the book sort of in total. Um, and so let's get into the content of the book itself, um, to which all three of you contributed chapters. The first two essays, for example, um, and we could speak of them kind of together because they both look at uh, chapters in the forging of, well, United Fronts, right? The first and the second United Fronts between the communists and the nationalists. So, so in the first, Tony Sage looks at uh, this character, Henrikus Sneefliet, a uh, Dutch commentary agent who was present at the creation, as it were, of the party. Uh, he wasn't on the boat, but he was in you know, the original sort of pre-raid meeting in the uh, international uh, section in Shanghai. Um, he was also instrumental in persuading the nascent revolutionaries uh, of the need to collaborate with the Guomindang to become a block within the Nationalist Party. The second chapter uh, is an essay by Hans van de Ven, who's one of the editors, about Wang Ming, who was very urbane, very erudite, uh, very westernized. He was one of the 28 Bolsheviks. He pushed a solidly sort of pro-Comintern line, came to clash with Mao. And it seems to me that, that something in common here is that both of these two represent a kind of cosmopolitan tradition in the CCP, and not just in those chapters either. We see other characters who bring this later on, I mean, 60, 60 years later in the chapter in the 1980s, uh, for example, uh, the character of Zhao Ziyang. Uh, can, can we talk about this, this cosmopolitan tradition and whether that was a theme that you deliberately wanted to hit uh, maybe in response to? I think that's something probably a lot of people don't know about the history of the party. Mm -hmm. we, came, we started with a, a kind of an inductive approach, being the three of us historians, and just said, let's, you know, we're going to have the two narratives. It's going to be the, the party is wonderful coming out of Beijing and the party is awful coming out of Washington. And we wanted to strike some kind of path in between as historians. And so we said, just look each and let each author tell it like they see it uh, in their time period. This was not Liz's chapter, but Liz has dealt with 1920s uh, yeah, yeah. cosmopolitanism and commitments from Anyuan. And so uh, how did that theme strike you, Liz? Yeah, I recall, I, I think, Tim, that at first you had suggested that I might work on the 1920s and mm -hmm. do a uh, possible chapter on Li Li San. I had kind of portrayed right. as the hero mm -hmm. of Anyuan in my book on yeah, the know. communists at the coal mine. And uh, I think I replied to you that I really had said everything I had to say about Lili San. <laughs> and uh, since I was currently working on the 1960s and work teams, I wondered if switching to a different character might make sense. But, you know, my guess is that the cosmopolitanism of it is a reflection of the fact that you really did give us pretty free reign 
to choose the characters whom we found attractive, and not surprisingly, most of us are probably most attracted to some of the more cosmopolitan figures in the history of the Chinese Communist Party, some of whom are not Chinese. So several of these characters in the chapters, um, uh, Dutchman and um, also Guzman, I think, uh, makes an appearance later (laughs) on. And um, so we have... um, people from Latin America, people from Europe, and then Chinese who themselves have spent a lot of time abroad and speak foreign languages, who I think to us as foreigners studying the Chinese Communist Party are particularly interesting characters um, to think about how they responded to the opportunities and also the problems that were presented by the Communist Party in each of these decades. Mm-hmm. Well put. Yeah. So they may not be perfectly representative, but they certainly do represent a facet of the history of the party that too often I think goes ignored. The big question that I'm always asked, and I feel like I'm constantly wrestling with, and I know it's not an easy one, is the party better understood today more in terms of its continuities or its changes? I mean, there are those who see the party in its current incarnation is very much, you know, the same party that existed under Mao. They emphasize its Leninist form, its authoritarian inflexibility. On the other hand, there are plenty of people now who would emphasize instead the big ruptures. It's completely different composition, you know, before and after Deng, and it's its ideological flexibility, uh, and its flexibility as a source of its resilience. Uh, I'm often torn, I think, but that it, it's kind of a litmus test. Those people who do fall on one side and, and fall on the other, you can sort of see an awful lot about how they, they approach China. I, I mean, I know that you'll all want to say both in answer to this, but l- l- let me ask specifically Liz first. I mean, of course, I do have to say both because the the party uh, yeah. could not possibly have survived without um reinventing itself at various junctures. And, you know, we can look at a number of those key watersheds of change. And uh, one that I think is particularly important is Jiang Zemin's Three Represents that everyone used to laugh at in the 1990s, but is really... Yes, Yes, I thought I was the only one. (laughs) My God, I I have a big question Um, all about Three Represents, and that's exactly my thing. Yes, I got that. I mean, that's exactly how um, I couched it, too, is how it's such an object of scorn and ridicule at the time. Yeah, you know, everybody called him a clown, and, and... but. Um, you know, it's profoundly important to say that people who are capitalists can actually be invited into a communist party. And um, so it provided, you know, it was very heretical, but it also, it suggested that this party was going to be the representative of advanced forces in society, both economically and also scientifically um, and intellectually. And I think that that has been profoundly important. So there are these, you know, extremely important changes um, that have helped to um, reinvent and rejuvenate the party. And yet overall, I would um, see it more in terms of continuity and particularly under the current um, general secretary, because I think that Xi Jinping himself really does look to the history of the Chinese Communist Party for his inspiration. And, you know, he often 
quotes Mao and refers to Mao and frequently is likened to Mao. Um, but as um, I and I'm sure a number of others have, have suggested, he also um, looks a lot like people um, whom Mao eventually broke with. And, you know, most obviously Liu Shaoqi, who, like Xi Jinping, was a kind of control freak and who wanted the Communist Party to be in charge of everything and was, you know, quite willing to mobilize masses uh, for support of the party, but did not want that mobilization to get out of hand. It's very different, obviously, from a Chairman Mao who had the confidence to think that if things got out of hand, he would be able to bring them back into the kind of order that suited him best and repeatedly showed that that was the case. But I don't think either Liu Shaoqi or um, Xi Jinping has that kind of confidence. And um, in my view, a lot of what she has done in the anti-corruption campaign is very reminiscent of what Liu Shaoqi did in the socialist education movement, the Four Cleans leading up to the Cultural Revolution, which was also very much an anti-corruption campaign, an effort to reimpose the control of the party over all aspects of society. And um, and also, Liu Shaoqi tried to develop a kind of cult of personality of his own um, uh, in that period, just as Xi Jinping is developing his own cult of personality today. And so I, I really, from my point of view, at least without understanding that history, it's very difficult to understand where the party currently is coming from, because I think the party is deeply conscious of that history. It's, it's a long history now uh, of a century and obviously a very eventful history. So there's a lot to pick and choose from. It's not as though it by any means is deterministic. It rather opens doors and, and opportunities and so forth. But it also sets limits uh, to imagination when you have general party secretaries um, who are less inventive. And um, so I, I see the continuity as being central, but not determinative. Yeah. The one of the themes that comes up in the book and uh, uh, Klaus loves to hammer on this one, is that it's a learning party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look at the changes. Part of the way it could survive organizationally is it wasn't afraid to go back on itself. And, and, you know, flip-flop was not a problem for them. Of course, when you run the propaganda system, no one's going to quiz you on your flip-flop. So it goes from an urban party to a rural party, right? To to a, a, a rural party to a, a Soviet-style administration. Then it's going to go anti-Soviet. And then... And, you know, then it's going to bring in a bunch of market reforms and all under the Communist Party. And I'm with Liz. I've, I've been saying for a while, too, that put away your Mao Zedong quotations and get out. I have a little red volume of Liu Xiaoqi on Dang Lundang. Right? <laughs> and it includes the long version of on self-cultivation of the Communist Party member. And uh, it's uh, very much that. The second thing that Liz said, I think, is key is the and this brings us back to the Catholic Church, the Sangha Dai Biao. The uh, three represents, that's like Vatican II. Vatican II. Right? There you you know, it, is, it, it is explaining to the faithful why, why something as awkward as, you know, uh, having capitalists in the Communist Party is theologically okay. And finally, I, the way I see Xi Jinping is I call it Xi Jinping's counter-reformation. Again, uh-huh. thinking Council of Trent. As opposed to the Edict of Nantes. The, the, uh, 
and, and what's he going against? He's going against the Reformation, the Reformed Leninism of Zhao Ziyang. And, uh, and then going into the Jiang Zemin. But we've got someone here who can talk about Jiang Zemin. We do, and indeed. Actually, we flicked at two later chapters where we will be talking about uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, Jeremy's excellent chapter. And Liz also uh, flicked at the four cleans. So we've got three represents and four cleans, and we'll get to both in a little bit. Um, you know, something that's always struck me about the party across its century of history is this this oscillation between periods of, you know, admirable ideological flexibility, where it's really able to set aside dogma in deference to kind of, you know, practical reality, and these other periods of retrenchment or ideological rigidity. Um, explanations, though, I mean, and this is something we, we very much see, uh, they, they boil down often, too often, I think, in by my, for my taste, to the individuals at the top of the party organization. You know, Mao was dogmatic, Deng was a pragmatist, what with the black cat, the white cat, the feeling, the stones, and blah, blah. And then Xi Jinping, where, you know, we're suddenly back to rigidity. I, I feel like people looking at China today are more apt than ever to find explanation in personalities of leaders. But I'm, you know, kind of less of a Carlylean and more of a Tolstoyan when it comes to this. And so this has never been very satisfying to me. Is there a better Better way to think about these oscillations, Tim. You talked about how Hans has talked about it. it's a learning party, mm-hmm. and that that I think that does take us away from that individual thing. Um, can can we expand on this? What are your your thoughts on you know the individual versus historical forces and the shaping of flexibility? Well, I think one way to think about it is is the is the tension between the supreme leader and collective leadership in the party, and that's definitely a theme that goes throughout the history, and uh, I. I've long seen that even Mao Zedong coming as the uh, supreme leader, you know, part of that was contingent. Of course, the Communist Party in China is based on the on the Stalinist model, uh, Bolshevik Party. But, you know, they didn't make Chairman Mao Chairman Mao until uh, 43, 44, when uh, they were up against Chiang Kai-shek being the the uh, the the Ling Xiu, the Fuhrer. Right. And his book on uh, China's destiny. So the Communist Party had to have an Elvis Presley figure out front to get everybody (laughs) dancing. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that's an agreement that has come amongst the party elite now, uh, 50, 60 years later in a completely different situation. Why is Xi Jinping able to do what he's doing? Is it because he's so brilliant? Is it because he's so charismatic? Or is it because the leadership has decided that that the Chinese political culture needs a figure like that. Right. During the Hu and Wen period, of course, I think, you know, I think we would have looked at at the collective nature of the leadership and decided, well, that's a feature. That's not a bug. This was mm-hmm. also a deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just a function of Hu being weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something that they believed that they needed at, at that time. But it allowed a lot of things to happen that I think a lot of people were. Well, the other way to look at it, too, is, you know, we kind of look back at the uh, the Jiang Zemin's extended reign, the post-reign in the 2000s, in the noughties, noughts. Um, But many of the repressive policies that are in line today came with the uh, youth league group around who and when. They were started. They've only just been perfected. Yeah. Yeah, the stable uh, maintenance regime Um, really was put in place in 2008. yeah, that's when we all started talking about harmonization. And, and partly the lead up to the Olympics, partly the um, unrest in Xinjiang and Tibet, 
and um, and clearly that uh, there was uh, great concern on making sure that the party did not lose control at that moment. And also, obviously, the financial crisis, international um, financial crisis. So all of those things made the party very nervous, and that certainly predated uh, Xi Jinping's term. And Jeremy, I want to bring you in here because I mean, I think your chapter, I was very pleased to see, recalls the, the that decade that we were just talking about, the decade of the, the naughty oddies, as you call it, uh, very much in the way that I do. I mean, it was, in a, a sense, our decade, right? <laughs> I mean, right at the heart of the years that we spent living in, in China, you from 95 to 2015, me from 96 to 2016. So, I mean, it was right in the middle of it, right? I mean, I feel like the early years of our show, too, Jeremy, were kind of, we you know, we were taping in that that the really awful apartment in Beijing, um, they kind of documented or maybe chronicled that whole shift away from the spirit of the, those earlier years uh, when, you know, we, we've kind of jokingly, and I see you even referred to it in your book, talk about a kind of golden age of liberalism. In yeah. Years. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, did I cite you as the source of that quote or, or did it come from me? I don't yeah, know, but yeah, we used to talk about it came from you originally. I think you were the first person. We, to say we used it. to talk about that a lot on the show, and I mean, indeed, our first show in April 2010 was about Google leaving China, which was kind of that was one of the signs of the end of of that era because you know they'd come in 2006, yeah, and it was yeah. uh, there was this feeling that there were possibilities of openness which yeah, closed, uh, and that did predate Xi. I got to ask though, Tim. The choice of Jeremy was an interesting one. I mean, I would have gone with him because I think that if you were to look at the newspapers of that era, he was probably the most quoted person. He was the guy with his finger on the pulse of, of you know, what was happening on the, in this new, you know, this new public sphere of the Internet. Like, mm-hmm. you had a question about what people are saying online, you got to ask Jeremy Goldcorn. I mean, Dan Wei was really doing that. I mean, you were, you know, you had the the. the your, the, the sense of the, the zeitgeist then. So I thought it was a really good well, choice. Well, Kaiser, it was an obvious choice. Here was Jeremy Goldkorn was the Sneevliet of, of the 25th century. <laughs> and, 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 but he was the messenger of historical nihilism. Yes. Uh, and, 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 he, you know, he was just bringing in the most advanced stuff from the West. Right, right. He was the flies that got through. The, I don't know the, if the I like the way this he is He was going. also, yeah, he was the guy who's picking, <laughs> picking quarrels and causing trouble. But that, actually, that was all but, about him. But in, in real answers is too, we wanted to break out of all academics and you know that there's there's very valuable knowledge about china that comes from people who do other than write dissertations and sit in a library and so the it was your active work particularly in that decade and living there and the lived experience that you had in your engagement uh, that was very attractive uh, for us. Yeah, As a, I thought it was a pretty inspired choice. I, say. I mean, not just because he's my buddy. And then, and then we went with uh, you know Yang Guobing. You know, oh, that was great too. Yeah, yeah his choice. And, and what he did, he comes yes. back with Guomei. Guomei, yeah. <laughs> That was fantastic. Uh, uh, we, we'll talk about who Guo Meimei was. I mean, actually, you know, it, this is sort of a tradition on our show is whenever we have some sort of pop culture figure that shows up, uh, the first thing out of my mouth is, Jeremy, would you like to do a quick explainer? Before we ask you to talk about Guo Meimei and uh, Yang Wobin's piece, Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about the three represents. I mean, and then and, and your choice of Jiang as the the person to focus on that was that was interesting uh, i mean it, it wasn't some internet entrepreneur it wasn't some emerging public intellectual it wasn't somebody symbolic like sun Gong, you know uh, they, they all would have been legitimate choices like you could have gone with jack ma right you could have gone with 
you know, um, Fang Zhouzi or something like that. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think part of it was that uh, as soon as uh, I think it was originally Tim and Hans had contacted me about the book, uh, Jiang Zemin was the first person I thought of because I am a Toad fan. I am somebody who's slightly obsessed with <laughs> Jiang Zemin. It adds new meaning to Toad. Yeah. Um, and it also seemed to me that he 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 was sort of hanging sort of wraith-like over much of my experiences of China that, uh, you know, he was this, uh, you know, sometimes visible but usually invisible presence over the government but over, you know, even the things that I I was doing in China, uh, the way people were interacting, you know, the fact that there was this crazy sort of capitalist boom uh, that you know he was partly or perhaps largely responsible for with the three represents, um, and that he also captured the imagination of you know a, a later generation of of Chinese younger Chinese internet users who weren't really you know observing politics when he was actually in power, but he's become this sort of almost cult figure. It just seemed that he 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 symbolized a bunch of different things about the changes in China and particularly the party's role in it. Jeremy, the three represents when when it was, you know, rolled out initially was something that I think both of us recognized as significant, but at a time when most of our friends, foreigners and Chinese alike, were really dismissive of it. I mean, okay, let's face it, it was inelegantly packaged, yeah? I mean, looking back, though, I mean, do you feel as confident as we were back then of how significant and during a kind of theoretical contribution this was that was made by comrade Jiang Zemin, the party core? Uh, <laughs> you, feel you know, f- I, I don't think I'm the right person to ask about the, the value of the theoretical contribution. I think you should ask a proper historian about that. But I think in terms... In terms of shaping the, the okay, times, yes, I think it was very important. I mean, the the company you used to walk for, your your old boss, Robin Lee, literally used to, well, and maybe still does, attend uh, meetings of the uh, consultative conference, right? Yeah, he does. I mean, that's extraordinary. Uh, you yeah. know, in, in in the early 1990s, when people thought maybe, you know, before Deng died, people thought things were going to go really backwards and, and, and uh, a lot of this experimentation with capitalism would end. Who could have imagined, you know, billionaire business people in... In, I mean, I know it's a weak and impotent part of the government, but still. So, yeah, I, I don't... And it's not the party either. No, so. but... But, yeah, no, but I, I take your point. Absolutely. I mean, my, my, the, the, what really changed my mind on it, and I'll just tell a quick story that I may have told before on this, was that um, I was talking about it with my father, who also lived in China, and he, he was the first person to truly alert me to the significance because I had said something sort of sneering about it. And he said... Uh, I recently visited uh, a, a company in Zhongguancun that employs 12,000 people. Only three were party members. One was a driver and one was a chef. Uh, and uh, the, you know, the other person was just some, some middling person. And, and he said that uh, anyone uh, who looked at that situation uh, uh, would, would have recognized that that was untenable for the party. That if you have like a, a, you know, a, a, an electronics concern a, a very very lucrative one and it had you know such low level of party representation that that was not going to, to to work so that that sort of alerted me to it and then I started watching this as this was happening um let's I, I wanted to ask you about uh Yang Wobin's chapter and about this this character Guo Mei. <laughs> by the way no relation um you say what what did Guo Bin see 
in her story, <laughs> said, uh, in her story that made her such a good vehicle for a discussion of the decade of the 2010s in China, Jeremy. Maybe could you give a quick um, potted kind of history of this this scandal scandal ridden woman? Well, I, I I mean I can't speak for Gorbin, but I th- I do think it was a genius selection. But from um, so she was a young uh, woman who had a Maserati and a lot of very expensive clothes and accessories, and used to. Uh, show them off on Weibo on the you know China's Twitter, the premier social network of the time, and uh, this was very common behavior. Uh, there was a word for it, shai um, fu, you know, to show off your wealth. But she uh, made the mistake of uh, uh, having in her bio that she was uh, working for the uh, China Red uh, Commercial Red Cross Society. I think it was called. I, I may have got those wording exactly. Close, but not have you, exactly have you got the name. At the time, but enough time, to yeah, time. close enough. Uh, right. But it had it had right a, a association. It with had the Red a, Cross. a you know apparent association with the Red Cross, um, yeah. and uh, this was before Xi Jinping kind of destroyed the internet as we knew it. And there was still a lot, very, very lively debate on social media. And, you know, the, uh, Weibo was very active and there was this bulletin board website forum called Tianya where there'd be a lot of sort of slightly investigative work oh, by groups of internet users. And uh, somebody uh, pointed out that this woman who appeared to be being paid by the Red Cross was buying Maseratis with, you know, the money or some money. And it became a, a a controversy on the Chinese internet. You know, she was flesh, uh, human flesh, uh, search engine flesh searched. searched. Uh, people dug her up. Uh, and uh, the Red Cross actually lost a lot of money, uh, the Chinese Red Cross, because people stopped donating. Uh, yes, s- blood supplies were very low. All yeah, stuff, yeah, everybody had terrible. to apologize. And... Um, uh, then she was eventually, uh, in, in 2015, a few years later, she was done for on gambling charges and then sentenced. Uh, she did five right. years in jail um, and had to do. She was one of the victims of the televised confession campaign on CCTV that became a hallmark of the early years of the Xi Jinping uh, administration. That's right. That's right. But she was a perfect poster child for a theme that we were struck by in the 2010s, which is how far away the party was. And just like your father's story, uh, you know, it, it sets the grounds for what Xi Jinping is on about, which is this is this is out of hand. We have to get back and, and control. And the spirit of Liu Xiaoqi, as Liz said, um, <laughs> has risen again. We must once again grasp the essential. Tim, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about uh, you know intellectuals and their relationship with the mm. state, with the party specifically. Uh, the chapter on Wang Yuanhua and your own chapter on Wang, Sh- Wang Shui, for example. Uh, you've mm. built a career on looking at the state and intellectual in China, uh, which I have long held to be one of, if not the most important key to understanding sort of how politics and how history move in China. Uh, this collection isn't an intellectual history, but it does zoom in on uh, some important inflection points in the relationship between party and intellectual, uh, again, including your chapter on Wang Shui uh, on the rectification campaign. Uh, can you quickly maybe identify across this hundred years what, for you, what some of the less obvious inflection points are? I mean, we all understand uh, some of these moments. We all understand, you know, the hundred flowers and then the anti-rightist campaign. We all understand these things. But what are some of the other some more subtle moments when the relationship between party and, and the Zhishifenzi kind of started to shift? 
Well, it's uh, you know you're right. It's been a career for me, and I, I, it, it's endlessly fascinating. And one of the key things is, of course, that um, most of the party leaders were intellectuals, and yet they were uh, criticizing intellectuals. And so Suzanne Weigel and Schwarzig years ago said, "What we think of as struggles between the party and intellectuals is, are just uh, struggles amongst intellectuals." So the key thing here is Wang Shuwei in the 1940s. He goes down as a critic of Mao. But what he was doing, he was very much in the in the group with Wang Ming, uh, not as a direct follower, but in the same worldview of this cosmopolitan communism. Uh, that that they they said this is part of a global revolution and it, it's going to be modern. And so, national forms is crazy. You've got to have Western forms because they're the most modern. And so, the, it was the the deal that was hammered out there was is you do it Mao, Mao's way or no way. Right. And yet, you know, plenty of people, you know, I also worked on Deng Tuo, who was the first editor of People's Daily. You know, they found a rich life uh, serving the party and being uh, you know, Chinese intellectuals and collecting art and, and doing these things in the 1950s. And then and then it, it blows up. I find the most poignant work is actually the 80s with mm-hmm. the um, well, um, Wang Shui, who we did not profile, yeah. uh, who, you know, was a leftist in the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, took down Yang Xianjian and others, uh, the, uh, um, and, you know, had his whole way, you know, he had his regrets. And even Zhou Yang, the, the, the Merle Goldman's bete noir, the, the, the literary czar, sure. you know, uh, uh, this, they're trying to rethink what they're doing. And so the book that captures this relationship so well is Miklos Haratsti, The Velvet Prison, Artists Under State Socialism, which was translated in 1989. And we all learned about it from Jeremy Barme uh, when he wrote about the Velvet Prison in China. And that is the attractiveness of the state socialist system for intellectuals to be the teachers of the masses. The attractiveness of Stalinism and socialism for intellectuals is that you get to be the teacher of the nation. Right. And look at Liu Binyan. Liu Binyan, what did he say? We have to speak for the people. And that's why the chapter by Xu Jilin uh, on um, Wang Yuanhua is so powerful. Because Wang Yuanhua was like Wang Roshui, a, a, a loyal lefty, super smart, super cosmopolitan. He loves 19th century European literature. He served the party. And by the 90s, he's he's an apostate. Yeah, but he's still an apostate in a within a kind of scripted way. Um, yes. And and the, the kind of elliptical way that he uses, he deploys language and all that, and which is it just it comes across in Xu Jinling's piece on him. I thought it was a really good study of the way that the state and, and the intellectual typically interact, and this isn't just mm-hmm. within the the history of the party, the hundred years of the party's history. I think this goes mm-hmm. quite far back, where you could describe a kind sure of lo- loyal opposition, where uh, you know remonstrance against the state takes on this kind of allegorical. Uh, very yeah. highly symbolic form. It's quite subtle. It requires actually yeah. a pretty good steeping in the culture to be able to read the, this kind of you know kind of you know arcane semiotic language sometimes. But Liz, I mean, maybe we can we can talk about this because you know this is something. This is your your playground as well. Throughout the whole history of the PRC, there have been lots of examples of this. I mean, the obvious ones like Haire dismissed from office, this you know oblique defense of, of Peng Dohua after he criticized Mao. Um, the invocations of May Fourth during the '89 protests all over the place. Do you think that this very culturally specific political idiom, the the, the requirements of of that understanding of of 
this symbolic language that's deployed by intellectuals, this makes Chinese politics, I think, particularly difficult to understand, really inaccessible to most people. And how, as a professor of politics and history, do you try to give your students a sense of this? Right. I mean, we're very lucky these days in that so many of our students are actually um, from China and have native fluency in Chinese and can help us yeah. out in this respect. Um, I think, um, you know, the question of political allegory is one that we find in lots of um, authoritarian regimes, especially those that have long histories and in which people then write in kind of arcane code that is accessible only to those who are really well-versed in the culture in which that particular political regime is set. So I don't think that's uniquely Chinese. I think we, we see it um, in, in different cultures, but in order to understand it in any particular culture, you have to be able to go back to the historical analogs that are being being referenced. And I think students, in fact, find that quite fascinating. But, you know, I would say as, as you and Tim were talking, it occurred to me that one of the first questions you asked, Kaiser, was about continuity and change in the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And Tim, of course, quite correctly reminded us that the party from the beginning was a party of intellectuals. These were intellectuals who gathered, who were deeply concerned about the fate of their country, but they included some of China's leading intellectuals, uh, the head of the Peking University Library, the dean of Peking University, even Mao, who certainly could not have been considered a leading intellectual, nevertheless had had an excellent education and became known for his calligraphy and his poetry and his ability to reference these kinds of things. I don't think we could say the same about Xi Jinping. I think, you know, we're talking about a general secretary today who, due in large part to the Cultural Revolution, is not terribly well educated in his own culture. People have laughed at his mistakes when he's reading somewhat obscure Chinese characters uh, in a speech and reading them out incorrectly. You know, he's helped by people like Wang Huning and others um, who guide him uh, on his ideological journey. But I think this is one real difference of the Chinese Communist Party today, that it's not led by someone who really is an intellectual. That may have been true for Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao as well. At least they were well-trained as engineers. Um, But uh, if we go back earlier to Deng Xiaoping, Mao Zedong, we are talking about people who enjoyed exchanging ideas and who were searching um, both in their own history and in Deng's case, being trained abroad, spending time in France. And that was true for many of the other early party leaders as well, that they were looking not only into their own history, but they were looking around the world for various kinds of ideas and analogies. So I I do think that's something that does not bode well, really, for the future of the Chinese Communist Party, 
to the extent that now it has more of the sort of apparatchiks that brought down the Soviet Union, people who really did not come across as intellectuals, people who understood how parties were supposed to be run and were very concerned about controlling them, but had difficulty with soft power, if you will, difficulty with referencing the more subtle messages in their culture, let alone reaching out in a cosmopolitan way to be able to incorporate foreign ideas within it. And so I think that is one of the worrying concerns for those who would like to see the Chinese Communist Party survive well into the future. In my view, it looks today with somebody like Xi Jinping in charge a lot more like the Soviet Union's party. And I think it's maybe a little less difficult uh, to interpret it than it was in Mao's day um, when you had to um, pull out your 24 uh, dynastic histories and look for those references <laughs> in his poems and so forth. You don't really have to do that with um, Xi Jinping's um, speeches. No, you don't. And um, so I think it, in some ways, it's it's quite ironic because Xi Jinping, of course, is constantly referencing Chinese history, the 5,000 glorious years of Chinese tradition, and how the Chinese Communist Party is the sort of seamless continuation of that glorious history. But I think the reality is that his own familiarity with that history is not particularly deep. And, um, and mm. that that's perhaps a concern um, for the future of, of the party. Oh, you have to be careful what you wish for. I mean, I'm not sure that we want Wang Huning or, or Huang Gang or anyone else succeeding him. That's the, the actual yeah, intellectuals. Yeah. They're, they're intellectuals, but they're, I'm not sure they'd be right, my right, best right, friend. Right. I mean, the top leader of the party has never been someone who was chosen for his intellectual prowess. It's always been somebody, you know, who could win the street fights. I think there's no question about that. But having that person be able, nevertheless, um, to um, present things in a way that were culturally consonant, I think has been very powerful and very important to the success of the Chinese Communist Party. And if it just has the street fighter, but that street fighter is really not able to put his fingers on kind of the pulse of the Chinese cultural tradition, I think that's a real vulnerability for the party's resilience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I suppose, do we need, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how the intelligentsia would respond to one of its own Right now, either I, I, it's it's hard for me to guess. I, I can imagine them maybe even being more offended uh, if he did have those sort of pretensions. And maybe we do need the street fighter, the guy who has some abilities in retail politics for the time that we're in. But hey, mm-hmm. I want to stay on this topic of intellectuals with you, Tim. Um, one of my gripes, one of my big gripes, and Jeremy's heard this a million times, and and this is really one of the reasons I admire your work and the work of people like David Ownby. Um, Mm. is that, especially since 89, the China-watching world has tended to focus on critical intellectuals, not the party intellectuals that you've Mm. you've made sort of your your bread and butter. Uh, They focus on the dissidents, almost to the exclusion of the the more establishment intellectuals, whether party or or not party. Okay, they're far less sexy than than the the dissidents or the critical intellectuals. Um, Less sexy, more stoogy. Yeah, but and you know, but but you could make the, the the case that they're also, or even maybe even 
more critical to understanding China as it is, right? Your chapter, you know, you went with Wang Shuwei, uh, who, as a victim of the rectification campaign, is more in the mold of critical intellectuals mm-hmm. who usually get the attention. Um, can you talk about your decision to focus on him? And that, that kind of deviated from your typical approach, which is like you're going to bring out this boring guy who, and you're going to show us how t- actually if we understand how he thinks, we get a better kind of – we draw a better bead on China's reality. I know. When I pitched my uh, my uh, dissertation topic to Phil Kuhn, I said, well, Deng Tuo, you know, he's a dead communist propagandist. You know, what, what's not to like? But, you know, we, we won him over in the end. Yeah. Uh, Wang Shuwei is, 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 you know, from World Goldman on down, has been a, 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 a poster child, a figure for dissident intellectuals. Right. And it was my old teacher at ANU, uh, uh, Pierre Rickman, Simon Lays, who put me onto him. And I have to say, for Dr. Rickman's um, uh, uh, benefit, uh, I didn't come up with the answer he expected me to come up with because he he considered Wang Shui a, 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 a paragon of morality who showed <laughs> the banality of Mao and the party. And what I discovered was, yeah, he did because he thought their communism wasn't communist enough. Right, right, right. So, you know, he was, he, so I still consider him part of my establishment intellectuals. And, and he was working within this language. Um, he was just brash out of Shanghai and didn't realize that he was on the home turf of the, of the biggest street fighter, as Liz put it. And of course, went toe to toe and lost on it. Yeah, yeah. But all the way down, um, I'm, I am with you. I, I think if we want to understand um, the ideology as it rolls around China's uh, political sphere, um, you need to hear more voices. And you mentioned David Owenby, and I was about to do a shout out for uh, reading The China Dream. Yeah, if fantastic. you want to find out thousands of pages now in English of a diversity of Chinese public intellectuals, New Left, Liberal, New Confucian, and others, that's it's a great source for people. And there's no excuse uh, for saying, oh, I can't read Chinese fast enough. Uh, there, there's plenty of voices there. So Huan Gang and the lovely Zhang Shigong are represented well. Um, along with a, a, another range of voices. Jeremy, do you remember when what, what Jude, how Jude Blanchett put it? He said, who is the David Brooks of China? <laughs> that, was, that was his. I thought that was so brilliant. It was like we kind of need to understand who the most sort of bland, um, kind of centrist and, and you know, Brooks isn't stupid. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I want to I want to move back to Liz and and get her to talk about her fascinating chapter about Wang Wangmei. Yeah, uh, Wang Wangmei was the wife of Liu Shaoqi. He was like his fourth or fifth wife, I think. Uh, he, I guess I didn't realize that guy had went through so many wives. But uh, you know, for those of you who aren't up on your party history, you know Liu Shaoqi. We've talked about him a little bit before. Uh, he was. You know, by the way, uh, I, I cut my teeth on in Chinese politics at UC Berkeley with Lowell Dittmer, who wrote the book on Liu Shaoqi. Yeah. So, uh, uh, he was a very familiar character to me growing up. Um, so, you know, he was made, of course, the first major target in the Cultural Revolution, and he died in prison. Uh, Wang Wangmei herself was also a victim of Red Guard violence. She actually endured one of the most humiliating and, and largest public struggle sessions. Um, and then, you know, with, there's famous pictures of it, and they're included in the book. You should see this. It's really, really distressing to see that, that the necklace of ping pong balls and the big straw hat. Um, but the, the central irony in your chapter was about how Wang Wangmei actually helped really set the stage for it, really maybe uncorked the bottle of 
the Cultural Revolution. Can you tell us about that, Liz, about the Peach Garden experience, uh, which was part of this Four Cleans campaign that her husband had launched? Uh, she went incognito to a Hebei village to try to uproot official malfeasance and ended up, you know, letting out the, the, the demon. That's right. So Wang Guangmei had had some experience uh, uh, in mobilizing um, society before the socialist education movement. During land reform, she was one of these intellectuals who had gone to Yan'an and had um, then been assigned to go down as uh, a communist cadre to help um, classify land and so forth. And she actually served during land reform in an area that became um, very well known for its violence and bloodshed. So she had already learned a thing or two about mass mobilization. Um, but she apparently was quite surprised in um, the mid-1960s when her husband, Liu Shaoqi, insisted that she should go down to some village in China, he was not specific where it should be, um, to help carry out the so-called Four Cleans, the Siqing movement that was supposed to clean up uh, cadre infractions uh, at the grassroots. And Wang Guangmei had, as I said, had this experience during land reform, but she had also been quite chastened during land reform at her inability to understand the local dialect of the peasants in Shanxi province where she had been in land reform. And later on, right after the Great Leap Forward, she had accompanied her husband down to his native Hunan province. And she was even more distressed there that she could barely understand a thing that the peasants were saying in Hunan, and they could not understand her either. And so when it came to the Four Cleans, she chose a village in North China where she would actually be able to communicate with the locals. And she went down incognito with a pseudonym um, claiming to be a security cadre from Hebei province. And she tells us in her memoirs that because television was quite rare in China at that time, um, most people really had no idea who she was um, for at least the initial stage of her time in this village. But like many intellectuals, she was extremely critical of the grassroots cadres. You know, she herself had had very little in the way of governance responsibilities. And when she saw these local cadres who occasionally cursed the peasants, or maybe not so occasionally, and uh, sometimes beat the peasants and sometimes took from them and so forth, she reacted to it with tremendous self-righteousness. And this, as the um, party historian at East China Normal University, um, Wang Haiguang, has written about this, the fact that when intellectuals are sent down to the Chinese countryside, they often, in his view, really overreact um, to the abuses of local power that they witness because they're very unfamiliar with the way in which village politics actually work in China. So Wang Guangmei was quite upset at what she saw, and she was highly critical of the local cadres there in Peach Garden for 
their infractions, their corruption, and so forth. And she then wrote up her experiences in something that became known as Peach Garden Experience, in which she talks about the steps that one goes through in mass mobilization and how important it is to fire up the masses against various abuses that are oppressing them. And essentially what she did in that document was to take the tactics that had been used in land reform against landlords and now apply them um, to cadres, to members of the Communist Party themselves who were accused of being um, corrupt. She was actually a scientist. Um, she was the uh, first woman, I believe, in China to receive an advanced degree in atomic physics, and she actually was accepted to PhD programs at both Stanford and the University of Chicago, and almost came to the U.S. for a PhD, but instead was persuaded to become a member of the communist movement and to go up to Yan'an in um, the wartime period. So Wang Guangmei, in Peach Garden Experience, takes her scientist sensibility and analyzes mass mobilization. And it really has a lot of fascinating insights. I mean, she says, actually, social science is so much tougher than the natural sciences. In the natural sciences, you have thermometers <laughs> that measure um, people's temperatures, and you can tell whether they're sick or, or not, whether they need medicine. In the social sciences, you have to just sort of intuit the temperature of uh, the political climate, but figuring out what it is and controlling it so that you whip the masses up into a frenzy, but can also um, settle them down again when necessary is essential. So um, she wrote this document, which her husband edited, and then he sent her basically on a speaking tour all around China where she would lecture six to eight hours at a time about her peach garden experience and the importance of um, using coercive means, if necessary, against um, local cadres in order to deal with the corruption that had crept into the party. So the great irony here then, of course, is that many of these techniques are then used against her and her husband just a few years later in the Cultural Revolution. It's Robespierre on the guillotine. But it's a story, I think, filled with, with so much irony because, you know, she, Wang Guangmei, came from an elite family in um, Beijing and Tianjin areas. Both sides of her family were quite well off and had a great deal of education. And she gave all that up um, to go and join the communists in Yan'an. Um, and then, you know, there is this irony of her then writing the book on how to attack people, which is used against her and her husband in very brutal fashion in the Cultural Revolution. And then again, after the Cultural Revolution, she reinvents herself as a major philanthropist. She takes the furnishings, antiques, and so on that were returned to her, her family heirlooms that were returned to her after the Cultural Revolution. She takes them, sells them, and uses that money to help out indigent 
women and develops a very successful NGO in the post-mail period. So it's, and so she comes back sort of full circle to um, this aristocratic elite. When she writes her memoirs toward the end of her life, does she have a sense of the irony? Does she have a sense uh, that what she had been pushing in those lectures in Peach Garden Experience was just one step away from Red Guardism, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't really get any sense of that irony. I mean, she's obviously a super smart person, and she is somewhat reflective on things, but she, I think, does not see this as a great irony. I think she sees it as kind of the natural course of a revolution. There's a certain resignation to it, not as much bitterness as I might have anticipated in reading the memoirs and her interviews with various people. There's a sort of sense of resignation, and there is this sense of inevitability that underlies her view of history and of the world. I mean, Tim was saying that as a historian, his view is a view of contingency, and that's certainly a view I share, that, you know, at every step in the road, we can make these different choices, and um, and then the choices come back to haunt us in all kinds of unexpected and ironic ways. But But if you believe fervently in the inevitability of history, I don't think you have quite that same sense of irony. And... Uh, and it, it doesn't seem to me to be there in her right, writing. Right. Yeah, I mean, communists are teleological thinkers by, by definition. Mm. So. Kaiser, I want to turn to a movie star and the chapter on uh, Shangguan Yongshu. Oh, yeah, right. Because she was one of the chapters that, um, uh, one, of our, one of the best, I think, and uh, she is an example of living with the party. Because and it's also the intellectuals that you and I share an interest in, but she's a creative, right? Uh, a cultural uh, figure. Yeah, cultural figure, and I think that uh, Zhang Jishun, uh, who's a wonderful scholar, uh, working out of Shanghai, and was the uh, well, quite openly the party secretary of uh, East China right. Normal University for years. Very kaiming, very open-minded. He uh, wrote a beautiful uh, chapter here about experiencing life with the party in the right. 1950s, and uh, a number. We've been talking about people who were identified with the party, in the party, and leading parts of the party. And, um, of course, there were, you know, the the other not part of the 60 million people then who were not in the party, who had to live with it. And I think her experience is ups and downs and tragic, and yet she's still trying to find a ways to work with the party. And I think it's one of the themes that you and I have seen with Chinese intellectuals is a desire to find a way to work with uh, the institution rather than oppose and the establishment intellectuals, but doesn't mean they have no agency That's or right. no That's dignity. Right. They they don't, you know. I, I often call it um, agency through exegesis. Ah. So yes, you cite Mao, but you interpret it. And I bet there's plenty of citing of Xi Jinping that comes right around to what that intellectual was saying ten years ago. Anyway, absolutely. Yeah, you know the, the, that chapter is fantastic. Uh, really, all about the vicissitudes of, of culture work during that really important formative decade. Uh, you know, there are so many others that I would love to be able to talk about. We haven't even really talked about Klaus's chapter on Zhao Ziyang or about Julia Lovell's really, really fascinating one about Abimael Guzman and, and the Sendera Luminosa, The Shining Path. 
Um, my favorite story. Global Mountain. I came back from from China in '89 after after uh, Tiananmen, and went back to UC Berkeley. There's this place called Revolution Books. Liz, you remember that place? Revolution yeah, Books yeah, in that, cha- that, that alley right by <laughs> between Channing and Durant. I've told the story on the show before, but it's just they so would come funny. by at the beginning of every semester to try to get me to um, order all my textbooks for classes through them. Yeah, oh, Christ. But they were Maoists, right? So um, it was really funny. There was yes, that, yes. that guy. Doctor uh, M. After '89, I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. RMP, Revolutionary Marxist Party. Yeah, yeah. So um, they had these posters of you know Guzman and and Sendero Luminosa people, and and they yeah. were they were all all about that. But they were trying to make the argument. I mean, you know, the that that. 89 actually represented a resurgence of, of enthusiasm for Mao. They had as their, their proof of that a guy carrying a Mao poster in, in Tiananmen. And I could see just by the way that fellow was dressed and kind of funny expression on his face that it was ironic. But in any case, uh, so I, I, I went, I asked the guy, so do you guys support the Khmer Rouge? And he goes, hmm, hang on a sec. Barbara, do we support the Khmer Rouge? <laughs> <laughs> There's also uh, the, the, anyway the, the fantastic uh, book. I'm really pleased uh, to to have been able to have you both on. One final question for reflection here before we we go to uh, recommendations. The party claims descent from the May Fourth Movement, and given that some of its founding figures were very much part of that movement, uh, it's not a groundless claim. Reading the book, um, the debates. The of the May 4th period are still being waged constantly throughout this this book. I feel like there's some new sort of uh, recapitulation of the same themes in almost every chapter. It's not just, you know, Wang Yuanhua and many others. You could even argue that uh, today we're still seeing a lot of that being fought over. And, you know, part of that is that sort of um, national versus cosmopolitan uh, uh, exigencies. Um I wonder, like, you know, the, the founding intellectuals who are very much of May 4th, you know, uh, Li Dajiao and Chen Luxiao, they both died long before the power, party achieved power. Li died you know, in the White Terror in 27. Uh, and then, you know, Chen dies in 42. But um, how were these cosmopolitans of the early days? Uh, and, and let's let's throw in, you know, Sneflit and Adolf Yafi and Borodin and all these other commentators. What would they make of the party today? What would they do? Would they see it as having achieved a kind of cosmopolitanism, or would they see it as this is this is the outgrowth of a purely sort of national revolution? Well, that you you there's an argument running through the uh, Western Sinology community about Mao, the you know Nick Knight versus Stuart uh-huh, Schramm. Uh-huh. Was was Mao more, more a, a Chinese and a nationalist, or more a cosmopolitan and a and a and a, and a Marxist? Um, I'd have to say that the, the May Fourth. I would guess that the May Fourth uh, figures would be largely yeah. unhappy with what they see today. Uh, uh, I think they would have been happier probably with uh, Jiang Zemin. Mm-hmm. Liz, Jeremy. Yeah, I sh- I share that view and. Um, it it relates to my earlier concern that basically the top level of the party has sort of descended into the apparatchik phase um, where you have um, uh, people who are um, defending certainly the um, Chinese um, 
uh, sovereignty in a, in a highly nationalistic, patriotic fashion, um, but a fashion that has lost a lot of the um, freewheeling, critical quality of the May 4th movement. And um, so I, I don't think that the early intellectual, obviously they would be delighted at the fact that China is now um, second and soon to be first largest economy in the world. They would be delighted that um, China is no longer in a century of humiliation and has emerged from that. And that clearly was a motivating concern for the May 4th generation. But the May 4th generation also, I think, really was motivated by a desire for freedom. Um, freedom from the restrictions of Confucian patriarchy, um, freedom for women um, to express themselves in ways that were not entirely um, controlled um, by family and so on. And um, I think they would be pretty uncomfortable with the sort of straitjacket that the party um, in many ways has been trying to impose on um, people's intellectual imagination. Um, and um, it's kind of lack of cosmopolitanism in that that sense. So, um, so I think it would be a very sort of bittersweet view on their part. Yeah. Jeremy, I guess you win. Your man, Jiang Zemin, sits at the very apex of China's <laughs> Communist Party history. It's like the, 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 the best we've ever had it, right? The toad, the toad, the toad wins. wins. That's, I, I have to say. Long live the toad. The, you know, the, one of our favorite photos in the book, you know, because there's a, there's a score of photos is Jeremy got us the one of, 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 of the toad, the, the great inflatable toad with the Jiang Zemin glasses. Oh you got that one. You know, I think we should all start wearing our pants up. Uh, Jeremy, Liz, Tim, it was so wonderful to be able to chat with you about the book. Again, the book is called The Chinese Communist Party, A Century in Ten Lives. It's edited by Tim Cheek, by Klaus Mulan, and by Hans Vandeven. Pick up a copy if you haven't already. It is truly excellent. Let's move on to recommendations. Before we do that, I want to quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, show your support by subscribing to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter put together by Jeremy himself and, of course, Lucas and the other people on our team. Check it out. Check it out. It's good stuff and it really does help. So recommendations. Jeremy, it's been a while, man. What do you got for us? Okay, well, first of all, I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to Tim and Klaus and Hans, because I think I was probably the worst contributor in terms of blowing deadlines, and I, I really tried their patience. So I humbly apologize, oh, humbly and publicly apologize for that. But in terms of recommendations, something that I've just got hold of um, based on a, a book review, and I've just started reading it. It's, a, it's an illustrated book by a writer and illustrator named Ben Kacho, or Kacho called The Dairy Restaurant. Um, and I, I found this thing via, I think, somebody's tweet and read this um, New York Times review of it. And the tweet, who I apologize, I don't remember who came up with it, said it was maybe the most sort of Jewish New York th story ever. And it's about Leon Trotsky, who spent uh, ah. a little bit of time in New York City uh, in 1917. And he was a vegetarian and kosher, I think. But he, anyway, he ate most of his meals in Jewish dairy restaurants in New York. 
uh, and one of his favorites was uh, in the Bronx called The Triangle Dairy. So this book is a history, a, a graphic history of these things. And uh, in the book, um, Katcher notes about Trotsky that he refused to tip, considering it an insult to the dignity of the waiters, and the waiters retaliated with poor service, accidental spillings of hot soup and insults. Anyway, so <laughs> that's my recommendation, Trotsky. the dairy restaurant. God. <laughs> he deserved the ice pick, not, not tipping. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Liz, what do you have for us? Um, can I give you two recommendations? Absolutely. You're absolutely welcome to. Okay. And I'll show you how boring I am because both of those recommendations actually are about China. Um, but I think they so really go wonderfully well with um, the book that we've been talking about today. Um, because like the book we've been talking about today, they really humanize rather than demonize China. And one is a book that's come out recently, um, written by um, Chung Li of the Brookings, um, yeah. and um, entitled uh, Middle Class Shanghai. And what's really wonderful about the book is the way in which um, Chung talks about um, avant-garde art and all kinds of trends in Shanghai that are not terribly well known outside of the city and um, really shows you really just what a vibrant place it is. And despite our image of China as being increasingly drab and controlled by the Communist Party, that there is in fact uh, a tremendous amount going on um, uh, within the city's culture. So I, I really think it's a, it's a great book for um, people who would like to understand um, a little more about um, perhaps the most dynamic and cause certainly the most cosmopolitan city in China. And the other is a book by one of the chapter authors um, of the book we've been talking about, and that is um, Yang Guobin. And, um, you know, like Li Cheng in um, middle-class Shanghai, um, Guobin, um, in his book, which actually hasn't come out yet, but will come out very soon, um, talks about a city. In his case, the city is Wuhan, and uh, he, I think the title is Wuhan Under Lockdown. It's uh, the story of Wuhan after COVID-19 hit, and although Guobin himself was not there, he um, basically harvested all of these social media postings, these sort of lockdown diaries by dozens of people um, in Wuhan. And um, it's a really moving story about um, the panic, uh, the fear, the um, concern that people had in Wuhan, but also their um, heroism uh, to some extent and their sense of community and the sense that although they were giving up their freedom under lockdown, they felt they were doing this um, to keep other people safe. And I think it, it's really, it's, it's a very, um, uh, as I said, moving um, story of what this was like in the city um, where, you know, initially in our um, 
newspaper accounts in the U.S., this Wuhan lockdown was seen simply as a kind of top-down authoritarian control. Only China could do this, and what a violation of people's human rights to have put them through this kind of lockdown. Then later on, of course, we realized that is clearly uh, one of the most effective ways of controlling this sort of public health um, epidemic. And um, so uh, Yang Guobin takes you really through the eyes of the people who were going through it and why they cooperated um, in many cases um, at considerable personal cost with the demands for the lockdown. So I recommend both of those books. Lee and Yang uh, are the two um, authors, uh, Lee on Shanghai, Yang on Wuhan, and um, they're really um, very fascinating accounts of what life in two of China's largest and most vibrant cities uh, is like for ordinary citizens today. Great, great recommendations. It's just hard for me to imagine Li Cheng knowing him and you know having read his other stuff, just writing about the avant-garde art scene in, in China. It's just hard for me to picture the guy doing that. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Thanks, Liz. Those are great. Tim, what you got for us? Well, you know, this is is my pay on to uh, those who taught me that that, uh, China could be cool. (laughs) Thank you. You know what? I I have the original... I have the original recording of <laughs> no, that. I want that to be my recommendation, Tang Dynasty. Oh, okay. One day, I mean, I'm thinking about packaging it as an NFT and trying to make a million dollars, but I have the original mm-hmm. recording of the demo we did for Guoji Ge, uh, which I play on and, uh, and you know, I, I did the arrangement for, so I, I'm... Well, then would you put that put that one up? Because I only have the, uh, the Spotify okay, version. Okay. I had an LP disc I bought in the mid-90s, and, uh, and I was like, Oh my God! <laughs> Heavy metal, you know, uh, and of course, of course, it evoked for me um, uh, "Star Spangled Banner" yeah, with Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah, it was supposed to. That's the idea. It's funny because yeah. I, I just showed that yesterday to my daughter. I, I had her, you know, I showed her uh, on YouTube Hendrix playing mm-hmm. "Star Spangled Banner" at Woodstock. Yeah. So, uh, I have to tell you a little story, if I may extend the podcast by a minute, relevant to this. We, we, one of the show. I haven't been on many shows recently, but one of the ones I did, I think it was a Dan Wang, um, and oh no, it was a Clubhouse chat. Something I was on with Kaiser, and we had a guest on in a similar situation to we have now on this podcast, and the guest said somebody who I kind of looked at and thought, oh, I'm kind of his age. Uh, and then he said of Kaiser, yeah, you know, I've known about you a long time because my mom was a fan of your band. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's soul crushing. I get that all the time now. It's depressing. Oh, well. Hey, so it goes. Hey, so put up if you can put up the link to your original. Yeah, you know, version, I'm thinking. About, I haven't released it yet. I mean, because it doesn't exist in the world right oh, now. Okay, I'm thinking. Okay. I, well, then I put should, up. I'm any- not. I haven't put it out. It's it's right here. I mean, I'm sh- I'm holding up this little cassette player. It's mm-hmm. the only place in the world that I know that it exists is on this cassette tape. So there's also uh, <laughs> Boel Talbi and uh, uh, Joe Pai and Face Yang Yao. Those those four songs are on this this 
demo tape. And they're really interesting versions of them. The lyrics are different on Boyat Halbi and all, it's anyway. The Guajigo version doesn't have the Russian choir, obviously, and it doesn't have that second verse that Ding Wu sings solo, which I think is the it was really inspired. I'm really glad that we did that. But uh, it's all it's all of us singing together, and it's it sounds like sort of a mob of drunks singing the Guajigo. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so it goes. I, I let me get my recommendation in. It's really boring. I mean, after that, I'm but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I have to recommend the July August edition of Foreign Affairs, which is really foc- focused entirely on China. Uh, the two essays in particular, I think. Well, there's really good ones from our friends like Jude Lanchette and and Yuan Yuanang, Orville Shell. But um, the two that I think I, I I really commend are the the essays by Wang Jisi. And uh, you know mm-hmm. who is the president of the Institute of, for International Studies at Beida, and Yuan Xuetong, who is the dean of the Institute of International Relations at Tsinghua. So two very very eminent uh, Chinese scholars, and with with different. Usually, you know, they're considered to be you know uh, in, in the case of of Yan, he's fairly hawkish. He's a liberal hawk, and then you know uh, Wang Jisi is is more of a liberal. But uh, they're very good. They're they, they're very thought provoking. And I think they they really need to be read right now in this moment. Um, I'm not sure of the order in which we are going to be releasing podcasts, but listeners may have already heard a chat uh, with Tom uh, Papinski and Jessica Chen Weiss from Cornell about this particular uh, uh, about foreign affairs and some of the essays that have been in it, uh, because they contributed something that was uh, in Foreign Affairs Online, and we had to talk about that. In any case. Liz and Tim, what a what a pleasure! And Jeremy, so great to have you back on. Uh, uh, congratulations on the book. I, I'm sure it's going to be. It's already been very very well received, and uh, I I hope that uh, everyone rushes out and buys it. I had asked our listeners to do that a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, uh, to listen to it, you know, to have read it beforehand, and hopefully some of them did. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Kaiser. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kaiser. Yeah. Great to see you, Jeremy. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McGronald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.